Today we're going to be thinking about the crowning of the king. I'm not going to be looking at one specific passage. We will come back to Psalm 110, but we'll be looking at different parts of Scripture. Yesterday we saw all the, the pomp and ceremony that went with the crowning of King Charles III. And today we're going to consider the much more wonderful and significant crowning of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the church every year we take time to focus on His birth at Christmas, and at Easter time we focus on His death and resurrection. But I wonder how often have you heard a sermon on Christ's ascension into heaven and His coronation that happened after that. There is a wee bit of a debate about when it happened. Jesus first ascended into heaven in His Spirit the moment He died on the cross. Remember what He said to the thief on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, some people, based on a difficult passage in 1 Peter 3, verse 19, where Jesus it speaks of going to the spirits who were bound. Some people think that after his death, Jesus went to hell to declare his victory over the people there. I don't follow that interpretation. I think the words of the thief and the, to the thief on the cross, which are, are very clear, that at the moment of death, Jesus in his spirit went to heaven. He went to heaven, and then the third day, he rose from the grave, reunited to his body, and for 40 days, he lived on earth. And at the end of those 40 days, Jesus ascends up into heaven, body and spirit this time, where he is crowned as King of Kings. We're going to think, first of all, about a crowning with glory. The night before Jesus died, in his great high priestly prayer, which you can read in John 17, Jesus said, And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And Jesus was speaking here as not just a man, but as the eternal Son of God, who lived with the Father in that eternal glory before He came into the world. Jesus, the, the God-man, when He would enter heaven, he would be transformed in his body into a glorified new state. Now, what would that glory be of this Christ, this crowned king? What would it be like in heaven? What does he look like now? Well, there are three incidents in the Bible, I think, which give us a little glimpse of what Jesus is like now. First of all, there is that transfiguration. When just before his death, Jesus was transformed in a glorious way to give Peter, James, and John, who were with him on top of that mountain, to give them a little glimpse of his glory. And Matthew 17 and 2 says this, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. I think that incident was given the disciples just a little taste of the glory that Jesus was going to receive when He would enter into heaven. And even though it was just a little glimpse, it was enough to overwhelm Peter, 
who began to talk and to babble, not knowing what he was talking about. It totally overwhelmed him. And that wasn't the full glory of Christ, but as I say, just a tiny little glimpse of it, and yet it devastated him. Or we think of Saul of Tarsus, this evil man on the road to Damascus to have Christians arrested and to put them in prison, and then he met the glorified Christ on that journey. And Paul described what happened later to the king called Agrippa. He says in Acts 16, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. It was Christ he met, and the glory of Christ was a light that was brighter than the sun. And this was noontime. This was a noontime sun in the Middle East, but Christ's glory was far beyond this. And do you remember how the, the brightness of that glory, it knocked Saul to the ground, and it blinded him. It was truly something awesome. And then the, the third incident, which gives us a little hint of the glorified state of Christ, is His appearance to the Apostle John at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And here in Revelation 1 we read, "'In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow.' His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, this is very symbolic and I don't personally believe that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth, but it is teaching us important truth about Jesus. It is trying to get across just how awesome Jesus is in his glorified state. And the response of John, now remember, this is the John who described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. Now in the presence of Jesus when he was glorified, John fell down as though he was dead. So the, the nature of Christ now, that he has been crowned King of Heaven, he has a glory that is awesome. He has a majesty beyond words. It's beyond anything that we can imagine. So different from the man of sorrows who people rejected. So it's a crowning with glory. Secondly, it is a crowning with worship. King Charles traveled to and from Westminster Abbey yesterday and then he appeared on the balcony in Buckingham Palace to thousands of adoring people, cheering and waving flags. How does this compare, though, to the praise of heaven? If you've got a Bible or if you want to read with me, Revelation 5, uh, if you want to turn to it, Revelation 5 and beginning at verse 9. 
And this is speaking about the praise, the adoration that the Jesus as King of Heaven receives now. So Revelation 5 and 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. King Jesus deserves it. In heaven, there are no protesters. There's no stop oil protesters or not my king protesters. In heaven, every voice of the angels and of the people is in unison. Praising God with all their heart, with all their strength, with all their energy. when we get a little glimpse of the glory of Christ, of the greatness of Christ, that should be our response. The reason why we live here is with our words, with our actions, with our lives, to declare that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, deserves all of the praise, all of the honor, all of the glory. Our cry has to be, look to Him. He deserves it all. You think of their cry because He has ransomed His people. He has shed His blood. He has gone to the cross. He's done that. And now He's risen to glory. He deserves it all. And so it's a crowning with worship. Thirdly, it is a crowning with power. In Psalm 110, which we read earlier, the Son is invited by God the Father to sit at His right hand. Now, that is not about the architecture of heaven. It speaks of the place of power and authority. That's what the right hand signifies in the Bible, because most of us, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are right-handed. That's our strength. That's our strong side, the right hand. And so, he's been invited to take all the power and to have all the authority over this world. In speaking of the working of God's great power, Paul in Ephesians 1 says this. We read this earlier. He says, then he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. Jesus now rules. Jesus now has all power and authority. Jesus Christ is the sovereign one over everything that happens in this universe. Christ, in regards to His power and authority, He is no equal. He is far above any earthly king. He's far above any spiritual forces, such as the devil. It isn't even that He is just above human rulers. The reign of Christ in regards to His power and authority is far above. He has no competitors in that sense. He rules over all. King Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful kings of the earth at his time. He was humbled by God, and for seven years he went to live like a wild animal among wild animals. And when he returned to his senses, this is what King Nebuchadnezzar said. He says, I bless the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar in his day was quite an absolute ruler. No one would have questioned or no one would have resisted his rule. If you try to resist his rule or question his commands, off with your head. And Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, my authority, my rule is nothing compared to the rule of God, the God who is seated on the throne. His rule is awesome. And so we have indeed a crowning with power. And then fourthly, it is a crowning with blessing. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 1 about the rule of Christ? It was for the church. Jesus rules now for the good of and the building of His church. And one of the main ways Jesus does this is through sending His Holy Spirit to help the church, to bless the church, to aid the church in its task. Do you remember the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church to equip the church for the task ahead? Peter, in explaining the coming of the Spirit, he said this, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, one of the almost first things that Jesus did when He was exalted to the right hand of the Father was to pour out, to send the Holy Spirit down upon the church. And we see the consequences of that on the day of Pentecost. Jesus' priority was to see the church equipped for His task. 
and so He sends the Spirit. Do you remember how in His upper room message Jesus told His disciples when they were concerned that He was leaving Him? He says, it is better for you that I leave because then I will send the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit brings to God's people the presence and the power of Christ into our very lives. Some time ago at a, a meeting of session on our evangelism committee, John Woodside, who would be minister in Kilkenny and Drogheda, was speaking. And he said that in the church in Kilkenny, in many ways, it was a church which was so small, its building was old and decaying. It was a church that had many ways appeared had little to offer. He spoke of how they prayed that it would be a church filled with the presence of God. And that's how that church grew. The Spirit of God was alive and moving within the people who were there. And as they met, people came in and were aware of the presence of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul speaks of the gifts that are given to the church, of the, the word gifts, of teaching the word. He speaks of these in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And these gifts given to particular men, Paul teaches, were for the purpose of equipping the rest of the church members for the service of the gospel. Now, when Paul speaks about that, that the gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers are given to the church for the purpose of building the members up for service, when he speaks about that, he speaks, first of all, how Christ descended to this world and then ascended to the Father in order to send these gifts upon the church. And so, at this moment, Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning to supply all that the church needs through the Word, through the Spirit, for the task ahead. I don't know how closely you follow the, the news about the war in Ukraine. I've got to be honest, almost every morning, one of the first things I do is to look up the news and to see what's happening in Ukraine. And over recent weeks and months, one of the regular things that have been spoken about are the supplies of ammunition and equipment to the soldiers who are fighting. Uh, it's mentioned about the Ukrainians needing the different equipment and asking the West for. Recently, it's the, the Wagner troops, that's, which are helping the Russians, complaining they're not getting the supplies of the resources of the weaponry they need. The wonderful thing is the church needs never to be in that situation. Because we have a king who is seated on the throne. We have a king who has more resources than we could ever imagine. And when his people pray to him, he will supply our every need. In Christ, we have the answer for every situation. In Christ, we have the answer for every need. One final point, a crowning with victory. 
When Psalm 110 speaks of the crowning of Jesus, a, a major emphasis in this psalm is the defeat of his enemies. In Psalm 110, if you have it in front of you, let me just read parts of it here, beginning at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then down to verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Part of the authority Jesus has been given is to judge the world. On that great and final day, Jesus will judge and have the victory over all his enemies. On that day when Jesus' victory is seen and revealed when he comes again, all his enemies are put under his feet, what will be the response of his enemies? Philippians 2 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and on the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, the rebellion against King Jesus will be over. All people who exist, the saved and the unsaved, will acknowledge who Jesus is. Every atheist who's ever, ever lived, every Muslim who's ever lived, every Buddhist, every Hindu, every Jehovah's Witness, every wicked and immoral person will declare on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that He is the Son of God. He's Jehovah. He's the King of kings. Now, that acknowledgement on that day will not save them. They will still be cast into hell forever to suffer the wrath of Christ forever. But they will glorify Jesus on that final day, acknowledging that which they have been resisting for all their lives. They will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He is King. On that day, His enemies will be defeated They'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. His redeemed people will enter into the new heavens and the new earth where they will reign with Christ forever. We will live in a world of perfect bliss and peace because all in the world to come is perfectly in submission to the rule of King Jesus. Where Jesus rules, peace will reign. The question that you and I have to consider is where will we be on that final day? Yes, we will all acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. But will you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord as someone who has rebelled against Him up until that point? and who's then cast into hell forever? Or on that day, will you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord as someone who has already embraced Him as your Savior and King? 
The question is, what are you doing with Jesus now? What are you doing with Jesus now? We live in the land of no surrender, no good. Before Jesus, we have to declare, I surrender all. Jesus, you're my king. Yesterday in the service, different people acknowledged Charles as our king. I thought it was particularly moving and fitting when Prince William did that, and he kissed his father on the cheek. Do you remember the words of Psalm 2? Kiss the son. Kiss the son in surrender. Kiss the son, embracing him as your king. Do it now, and then you'll have hope eternal. Let's quickly recap the crowning of the king. What will it be like? It'll be a crowning with glory, with worship, with power, with blessing, with victory. What an amazing thing it is. There is where hope is to be found. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that we can have an insight today into the crowning of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the eternal King, the one whose rule is marked with glory, with worship, with power, with blessing, with victory. Father, we realize in this world there are two sides, those who are on the side of Christ and those who continue to resist Him. Grant by Your grace that all within this room, all within our minor hall, all who are watching online, all who listen on CD, that we all will surrender to Jesus, embracing Him as Savior, as Lord. For such grace, Amen.